guys. Welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and today we'll be talking to a guy that I know many of you are going to recognize, and that's Aaron Warbritton of The Hunting Public. Uh, if you're not familiar with The Hunting Public, they're a group of guys who travel around the country hunting public land for the most part, and they're very successful at doing so. They're, they're very successful at killing great bucks, uh, turkeys, and, and a lot of other game species with their somewhat aggressive style of, of hunting. So I was excited to have the opportunity to talk to Aaron about the hunting public and, and the tactics that he uses to find and kill deer on unfamiliar tracks of land. And I know you guys are going to enjoy it as well. Uh, regardless of whether you hunt public or private land, uh, you're definitely going to want to give this one a listen. Uh, it, it should get you fired up for deer season and speaking of deer season, by the time this releases on Wednesday, uh, it's just going to be three days away from the deer season opener here in, in Georgia where I'm at. So I know, man, I'm getting pumped for that. Several states have already opened out there. I know there's parts of Florida, South Florida, uh, South Carolina has been open for a little while. Uh, Kentucky and North Dakota and Nebraska all opened up here recently, and I'm sure there's a few more out there as well. But Man, it's it's just been nice to to start seeing those success photos pop back up in my social media feed. Uh, anything to replace all the doom and gloom, you know, COVID and political posts is a uh, a much needed distraction. So I'm I've been real happy to start seeing those deer photos, those happy hunters pop back up uh, in my social media feed, and I know you guys are are probably glad to see that as well. Uh, hey, with deer season upon us, we have been cranking out a lot of great new video content on the on the NDA YouTube channel, and we'd love for you guys to to check that out. You can go to youtube.com slash deer association or just search National Deer Association on YouTube. You shouldn't have any problem finding us there. Uh, and while you're there watching those videos, be sure to hit that subscribe button and the little notification bell so you'll never miss another one of our videos. Hey, and if you're not already, I, I would really encourage you to subscribe to our NDA email newsletter. Uh, that comes out weekly and includes all of our latest deer hunting and land management content. Uh, that includes action alerts for various hunting and conservation issues across the country, uh, updates on CWD and other deer disease issues, as well as our popular Age This Buck Challenge that where you look at a photo or photos of a buck and submit your age estimate for that buck. And then the following week, uh, we include, you know, we'll have a new buck and we'll include the results from the previous week, uh, th that survey, as well as our own estimate of, of how we thought the buck was and how we came to that conclusion. So that's always a, a fun thing. It's a very popular part of our newsletter. And uh, we would encourage you guys to sign up and get that. We don't you know, spam up your email box with a whole bunch of emails. We send out that weekly newsletter and then occasionally, you know, other things re regarding those action alerts, you know, anything that may be going on in your particular part of the country, uh, any, any kind of NDA event we may make you aware of. But again, we're not sending, sending you a bunch of spam emails. It's, well, we really try to monitor uh, what we're sending out and how often so we don't we don't fill up your email boxes. So uh, you can check that out at deerassociation.com slash newsletter. And again, as our token of our appreciation for all of all of you guys listening and, and subscribing and downloading our episodes here, uh, we've created that special membership offer 
And several of you have already taken advantage of that, and we certainly appreciate that support. You can go to our website at DeerAssociation.com, click that Join or Renew link at the top of the page, and just use the promo code PODCAST. And what that will do is you'll get $5 off an annual membership fee, so it'll be $30 instead of the usual $35, and we're going to throw in a free NDA cap. So a great offer there. Not only will you save a little money, but you'll get some cool NDA gear to go with it. So I would encourage you to take advantage of that. Whether you're And if you're already a member, you can still take advantage of the offer. We'll just tack an additional year onto your current membership. So don't, don't be afraid. Even if you've only been a member for a few weeks, uh, you can still take advantage of this offer and get that discount and get that NDA cap. And one more thing before we jump on the phone here with Aaron. Uh, this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast is brought to you by our friends at Matthews Archery. Uh, I've been shooting a Matthews VXR for a couple years now. And man, I have to say, I've shot a lot of different bows over the years, but I believe this one is as smooth, uh, as quiet, and just vibration-free as any bow I've ever shot. Uh, I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting to see what they come up with or what they release in November, but I can tell you, I'm going to have a hard time giving up this, this VXR. It's, uh, it's done well for me. And it's just, uh, it's a fun bow to shoot. I'll say that. If, if you're in the market for a new bow, hey, be sure to check out our friends at Matthews Archery at MatthewsInc.com. And with that, let's get on the phone here with Aaron Warbritton to talk a little deer hunting strategy. All right, guys, I got Aaron Warbritton on the phone. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Well, good deal, man. I, I, I appreciate you taking out time to, to jump on here with me and, and talk hunting. Uh, I know you, uh, you've been a, a, a busy guy this spring. Uh, hopefully have you had time to, to fully recover from the Turkey tour yet? Oh, a little bit. Um, <laughs> when, by the end of it, we usually come home for about five or six days straight. Pretty much. So I wasn't able to get that a bunch of sleep in this time. I had too many, you know, home improvement projects and things that I've been putting off. <laughs> all spring I had to get to. Yeah, we're recovering and uh we've been out shooting our bows in the last week, getting ready to go try to shoot some pigs in Texas. So it's on to the next thing now. Yeah, the the fun never ends, I guess. (laughs) No. Well I got I I know that this is a deer podcast. We're gonna we're gonna focus on deer, but I do I did want to ask how how did the turkey tour go overall? Uh it went pretty good. Uh we were down in your your all's neck of the woods there for a while we started in florida and then we went to georgia and uh we're also in alabama and hunting was i would say hunting was pretty average everywhere we went we we got into birds everywhere we went um but yeah overall it was a good spring love love turkey hunting that's that's one of my favorite things in the world to do so oh we had a good time yeah did 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 it feel a little more normal this year i guess compared to 2020 you know with all the the, yeah. the whole covid thing did, did things seem to be a little bit back to normal oh no doubt yeah last year um covid really hit right about the time that we were starting the turkey tour so i mean i was basically living in a tent in mississippi when my old man called me on the cell on my cell phone and said hey i don't know if you're watching the news or not but there's some pretty crazy stuff going on <laughs> Like you guys may be stuck down there in that tent for some time. Oh my God. And of course, yeah, from that point forward, everything was kind of thrown in a blender for the next couple months. 
But yeah, this spring was much more back to normal uh, business as usual in the in the turkey woods, you know. But uh, overall, yeah, it was a great spring. Had a lot of fun. Well, good deal, man. It's always always fun to to watch you guys and and just getting to see the the challenges of of hunting all those different states. It's um, yeah, it's a it's a cool cool thing. But for those Thanks. <clears throat> for those who who may not be familiar with you or the hunting public, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Maybe going back to kind of who who introduced you to hunting and and how that's led into you know what you're doing now with the hunting public. Yeah, sure. I I started hunting when I was well. I mean, I was introduced to hunting when I was probably four or five years old. I mean, I can't hardly. I probably couldn't. I probably don't even remember the first time that I went to the woods with my dad or my my uncles or my cousins, I was probably so little. I've been doing that. I mean, I, I basically grew up in a hunting family um, where my uncles hunted, my dad hunted, my dad's buddies hunted. We went to deer camp all the time. Um, my cousins hunted so and, and fished. So growing up, that's kind of all we did. I'm from rural northeast Missouri, a little town called Paris. Got about 900 people in it. I graduated high school with, I think, 37 people in my senior class. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm just a redneck Missouri boy that that uh, grew up hunting and fishing. And I, I mean, I, I played some sports in high school, but most of the time sports played second fiddle to anything that was in in season, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can relate. So, so. so how did that all lead into, you know, you meeting up with, with the other guys and, and starting the, the hunting public? Um, well, it's kind of a long story, but, uh, I started, I started filming my hunts when I was 10 or 11 years old with my cousin. We'd been, at the time we had VHS tapes of, you know, the juries and, uh, real trees, monster bucks. Those were our favorite ones. We would just, we would wait until those would go on sale every summer at Walmart. And then we'd buy them and we'd sit at his house and just watch them on repeat. Mm-hmm go out in the yard and shoot our bows and get ready for deer season. Um, you know, and of course this is 25 years ago now, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of where that, that's kind of where we got the idea to steal my aunt's video camera out of the closet, and start going <laughs> to the woods and start filming hunts. And I guess from that point on, I, I, I guess you could say I was fortunate to know what it was that I wanted to do. Um, and I tell you know, people that all the time, especially like college, you know, interns or students that talk to us about careers in the hunting industry. It's like, man, I was really lucky because I was 10 years old and I pretty much knew what I wanted to do for a career. So at that point forward, I was always sort of dabbling and learning more about filming hunts. And eventually that, you know, transitioned into, you know, a few freelance jobs, part-time jobs in the industry when I was in college. And I went to work for Bill at Midwest Whitetail for, I think I was there for about seven and a half years. And that's where I met Greg and Zach. Um, and when I left Midwest Whitetail, I was going to come back and go back to work for my old boss, Marvin, um, who uh, I worked for in college. I just worked there as a service technician on appliances, and fixed dryers and uh, washing machines and refrigerators and whatnot. I was going to go back to doing that and just kind of freelance, uh, dabble in the video production stuff. And then I got a call one night from Greg and he's like, uh, you know, come over for dinner or whatever. And we went over there and sat down and 
we started talking about this idea about the, the hunting public and eventually we just decided to give it a whirl. I guess you could say around <laughs> <laughs> the dinner table, like, man, we'd really love to create some content that's sort of built around your average hunter that is just like us, like basically the general public that hunts. So we were like, why not just call it the hunting public then? And off we went. And that's been our, that's been our mission from the get go is to try to create relatable content to the general public that hunts, I guess. Yeah. And man, it's definitely, you've obviously struck a chord there, uh, just with the, with the following that, that you guys had developed. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's been incredible to watch. It's, uh, I think it was, you, you just hit a, a, a niche there that was, that was much needed and, and really pretty much overlooked by the hunting industry. So it's been cool to, uh, you know, I didn't find you guys right off the bat, but I've been kind of keeping up with you for three or four years at least now. And just to, to watch the the growth has been uh, phenomenal. Thanks. But I, I know, you know, you guys are, are also big in it, not just, you know, providing hunting content or, or entertainment, but um, I mean, you've also been pretty vocal about hunter recruitment as well. Is that kind of one of the one of the missions as well behind the hunting public? Oh yeah. Our, I think it's in the first or second line of our mission statement. It's like the viewers always come first. So basically any decision that we make as far as THP is concerned, like what sort of video we're going to try to create or what sort of content, you know, podcast we're going to record or whatever. That's, that's the first question we're always asking ourselves is what sort of value can we create with this content for the viewer today? <clears throat> and then everything else falls back behind that. Like if there's, there's business responsibilities we have, it comes after what we believe we can do for the viewers with the, with the content. So yeah, that's, that's been our, and from the get go, we, we knew at the time, you know, when we started THP that there was a recruitment issue as far as like basically our hunting population was decreasing or the, you know, the, the amount of hunters on the landscape, especially whitetail hunters and small game hunters was going down and every state agency was telling us the same thing. So we obviously don't want that to happen. I mean, we want, we want the next generation to be getting in the woods and experiencing the same things we do because we're so excited and passionate about it. We want to show them that they can go out there on public land or small private land or whatever on a budget and they can have a positive experience too. So that's been sort of a cornerstone for us since the, you know, right out of the gate, that's been something we've been real passionate about and something we're always working towards. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's awesome. Um, I don't know you, you, as you may or may not be familiar with, uh, you know, the national deer association, that, that is one of our key kind of, um, target areas right now is, you know, that the whole R3 movement to recruit retention and reactivation of hunters. So, uh, definitely appreciate what you guys are doing out there in, in that aspect. So there's, uh, there's no doubt in my mind, you guys have have helped a lot of new hunters, you know, get started through your videos, but, uh, you, you've even taught some old dogs like myself, a few new tricks along the way too. Uh, I know just, I've really over the last few years of finding you guys and, and some other content creators out there as well, but just really changed the way that, that I approach and hunt public land. And, uh, and it, 
led up last year. You know, I was able to have my my best season ever. You know, killing two mature bucks on public land here in Georgia with my bow, and uh, you know, a big part of that was just applying a lot of the stuff I've learned uh, from watching you guys. So uh, that's awesome. Appreciate man. appreciate that what you guys are doing. That's cool. But hey, let's let's shift gears here and then kind of jump into some hunting strategy because that's that's ultimately you know why I wanted you on and and you guys have really seemed to have this down to a science to you know taking these trips and and quickly breaking down a new piece of property and ultimately you know filling deer tags a lot of times so let's uh let's talk about that some and and I want to start now by the time this episode comes out if everything works out the way it should it, it's probably going to be around late August so you know archery deer seasons are going to be right there you know getting ready to kick off in a lot of states uh, so it'll really um, preseason scouting, I guess, will really be that ship will have sailed at that point. I, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I would like to hear your thoughts on it just briefly. With you guys traveling around so much, hunting so many different places, do you worry too much or spend too much time, you know, preseason or summer scouting, or or is it mostly just you know done on the fly as you're as you're hunting? Uh, no, we still try to do a fair bit of summer scouting. We used to have time to do more of it um, a few years back, but you know, with other commitments in the last couple of seasons, we haven't had as much time to summer scout. That's been sort of one of the things that's had to take a backseat to other things. But I would definitely say that it's very valuable to do, kind of depending on your situation. You know, if you're if you're hunting a couple of small hundred acre tracks or farms, for example, and you've been hunting them for the last 25 years, it may not do you a whole lot of good to go out there and scout during the summer because you already know the lay of the land. Um, I'm not saying you can't pick stuff up on it. You certainly can. Anytime you go to the woods, if you keep an open mind, you can learn something. But uh, where we find summer scouting to be most useful is when we're going into a new area and just driving roads around public areas and getting to know like which roads are open, which roads are closed, maybe scouting bean fields from a distance. Uh, we even dive in and, and scout, you know, boots on the ground for bedding areas in the middle of the summer. They're definitely harder to find during that time because it, everything is super, super thick and the bugs are terrible and it's hot, you know, <laughs> but yeah, we, you can still find those old rubs, old licking branches and stuff. And potential bedding areas during that time that you can hunt during the early season. I mean, on numerous occasions, we've done, we've done some preseason scouting. We've blown through bedding areas in early August, uh, mid August, even just trying to get a feel for where the deer are living at and went right back into those same areas, you know, in the September, early October and watched mature bucks stand up out of those beds. So it's definitely can be, it can definitely be valuable. It just kind of depends on the situation that you're in. Right. Yep. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I love this time of year, just, um, you know, mainly just learning, learning new areas or learning properties mm-hmm. that I've maybe only hunted a, a year or two and just, just really getting to know them better this time of year, the the lay of the land, like you said there. So, um, yeah, it, it's definitely, it, it can be a, a miserable time to, to be out there, you know, running around, but, uh, yeah, you better yeah. have some tomato on. <laughs> yeah. The text will carry you off. Oh man. Yep. I just, uh, had my first, um, encounter with, of, of the season with chiggers the other day. So I've got, 
oh, bites yeah. all over my, <laughs> my legs and back yeah. and all that. So, uh, yeah, part part of it. But let, now, so like I said, at, at this point, time people listen to this, um, you know, depending on what state you live in, some of them may still have some time to get out and do a little preseason scouting. But for, for the most part, that ship will have sailed. So let, let's kind of um, dive into the the nuts and bolts of of breaking down a new property. Say, you know, somebody's going to hunt a, a new a new property this season, a new piece of public land. But well, actually, I tell you what, before before we get into that, how do you guys go about just choosing the tract of public land within a state? Let, let's let's start there. Um, say you, say you've already picked a state say my home state of Georgia here, you, you were going to hunt that this season. Um, how would, what, what kind of factors would you look at in choosing a specific track that, that you guys wanted to hunt here? Well, the first thing would be timing. So when is your vacation? When are you planning to take your trip? You know, and man, if you if you want to use Georgia as an example, that can be a, that can be a good one with a lot of details in it. But it it really comes down to the specific state that you're going to, um, just because every every state's a little bit different how they do the regulations, how their seasons are built, how their public lands, you know, are how they function. For example, so like if I'm looking at hunting in Georgia, I'm going to pick my time frame, and then I'm going to go through the list of WMAs, public areas within the state. And some of those, as you are well aware, quota hunts that yep. you have to put in and draw, Right. you know, but on some of those quota hunts, they can be very, very good hunts with, you know, some really high quality deer taken there because the, you know, the herds either managed for quality bucks, the, the number of hunters is capped on the area. Um, I'm also looking for counties with antler restrictions or I'm looking at, areas that might be archery only potentially, but it kind of just depends on what your, what your goals are as far as where you want to hunt. Um, and, and when you can do it for me, when I went to Georgia, I was looking at, I was looking at that list of WMAs and it was too late for me to apply for any quota hunts. So I was just looking at the list of WMAs in the public areas that were going to be open during that time when we were going to be there, which was in mid December. So I just went down the list and I picked five or six of them that I thought would be good hunting. And I guess how we get there is I'm, I'm looking for an area within a portion of the state where I have backup plans. So I don't want to, if I'm going to a brand new state, a brand new area, I don't want to pigeonhole myself and end up on a 1500 acre piece of public land with nothing else no other public within three hours because the, if you don't have a backup plan, it almost, I mean, I can tell you on numerous occasions that could have really screwed us up because oftentimes your first guess isn't correct. I mean, you, you got to go into these, to these spots, you know, with open mind and move on if you, if you're not getting into deer. So that's, that's kind of my long wind way of saying, when you go into a state, it's good to have multiple options, you know, that are easy to get to. So that was kind of my first criteria. My next one um, is, or, or well, in the case of Georgia last year, was rut timing. 
I was down there in early December. And as you know, in the South, rut timing all depends on which area of the state that you're in. I mean, you could, oh, yeah. deer could be rutting in, heck, they could be rutting in early November in one portion of Georgia, and they could be rutting in the middle of December in another portion of the state. Yep. So I was looking at my time frame when I was going to be there and trying to time that with the, with the rut as best as I could. And once I started to, you know, you're looking at things and you're just trying to kind of reduce it down to a number of a small number of options. Once I got to that point, I started looking at about five or six options and I was just doing some Google searches on whatever I could learn about the areas, little tidbits and so on and so forth. And then I was calling biologists in those areas and talking to them about the deer herd, about the amount of hunting pressure, just asking some more general questions about it. And in those conversations, you'll end up getting a lot of times some really key details that can help you out when it comes time to hunt. And those are these are all things that you're looking at before you even set foot on the dirt in that state um, when it comes to picking an area. Yeah. Yeah. As somebody who's actually my background is, is working on public lands for a couple different state agencies. But uh, yeah, you, you hit on a point there man, I was always more than willing to help anybody that called and that I could tell had done their homework and, yep. and that asked the right questions. But man, the, the quickest I could tell a little tidbit of advice for anybody that's going to call their, you know, a biologist or, or a technician on a WMA, don't start off with, Hey, where can I go kill a big buck? <laughs> like yeah. That was, no, that ain't going to work. No, no. Because most of those no, guys. I mean, we ask all kinds of questions that the technicians were extremely helpful with. It's like, well, you know, what type of cover do deer favor when they're bedding down here? Or what, what type of food sources um, the deer like in the woods around here? And they might mention a certain type of oak tree that, you know, to, to watch out for or a certain type of browse or whatever. Um, and all that, that is just little pieces of info that you can throw into your toolbox. So when you're out there doing your scouting, you can pick up on that, those little tidbits. Um, because that's what it is. I mean, it, you're right. Everybody wants the quick answer. They want the, <laughs> yeah. they want the fast solution, but it just don't exist when you're hunting public land for deer. I mean, at least rarely it does. Most of the time, you're going to have to go out there and, and do your homework and get put some boot leather on the ground to figure out what the heck is going on. So that's that's what my focus is always on whenever I'm going into a new state is, is trying to pick up as many fine details as I can before I get there. That way I can be more efficient with my hunt. Because if you don't figure all that stuff out, like even just even just easy logistics, like where can I get gas? where can I get groceries? Where can I camp? Where am I allowed to camp? Where am I not allowed to camp? All that stuff, you know, talk to the technicians or the people that work there and ask them if you need a four wheel drive truck to get around the road. I mean, if you're just looking at Google earth or on X, you're not going to be able to tell, you know, if those, if those access roads are, are drivable or not. A lot of times, I mean, I, there is some layers on Onyx that you can turn on and off. It'll tell you some of that information. But just getting those types of details from the people that work there ahead of time is going to save you a bunch of time in the, you know, in the woods at the beginning of your trip. 
that's what I'm more focused on than anything else is trying to be as efficient as possible with my time when we go on these deals because you're only there for five or six, seven days. And your average hunter is in the same boat because they're taking their vacation or they're trying to jet out for a weekend or whatever. So the more stuff you can do from home from a desk or a computer ahead of time, the the more time you're going to have in the woods. Yep. Well, let's, let's talk about that then a little bit more as far as you mentioned you know, a computer there, you mentioned on X, um, once, once you've chosen your actual spot or, or maybe some, you know, multiple spots, like you said, have some backups, what's the next step in the process? Uh, I assume, you know, just from what you said there that, that you're going to do some, some cyber scouting or e-scouting, whatever you want to call it. Um, what, what's kind of your, your process from there? Well, uh, it kind of depends on the terrain that you're hunting. Because out west and, and in wide open landscapes, we would probably go about things a little bit differently than we would in, in say, thick big timber like Georgia, for example. But overall, what I'm looking for is places where people don't go. And that's, that's sort of the catch-all phrase that we use all the time. Like mature bucks are going to live, and deer in general for that matter, are going to live in areas where people do not go. So if there is walk-in only portions of the public land where you cannot drive down any roads in that section of the public land, I will target those areas. Or if, say, the public land borders a highway and it's no parking is allowed along the edge of that road, I will consider hunting two, three hundred yards from that road and maybe just getting dropped off in the road ditch or something by a buddy so that I can jet in there and I don't have to park my vehicle. Um, because th- that's another thing I think some people have the misconception about is like when we go out to public land, we're killing all these deer four miles back there or whatever. That's not the case. Um, it is in, it is in some cases for sure, but oftentimes, we're either crossing a river or something that people don't cross very often. We're going, we're bailing off in some really, really steep terrain where people rarely go. Uh, or we're hunting an overlook spot like the one I just mentioned. It's right off the side of a road where you can't park or where very few people would even think to park. Um, we're looking for those types of areas. And then you're also looking for areas where there are no roads, where you can literally hike to the back, very back corner. But the reason why I prefaced all that before I said that part is because on a lot of WMAs in a, in a heavily hunted state like Georgia, for example, let's take a 10,000 acre WMA. You might have two or three little spots on that 10,000 acres where you can get a mile and a half from the truck. Yeah. You know, a lot of these agencies do a great job at access, which means that, you know, a lot of that country is accessible at the same sense, like it's, it's easy for you to get in and it's easy for hunt, other hunters to get in and out within a half mile of the truck. So what I start looking for in areas like that, that have really good access where you can't get a mile back or something are those overlooked spots, like the ones I was mentioning a second ago, just got to be creative in, in looking for all those things beforehand. That's, that's what I'm doing primarily with the cyber scouting is, identifying those spots and then I'm dropping pins on all of them. I'm dropping pins that I just, I label PL as possible locations. And then when we get there to do our initial scouting, we just go from pin to pin to pin to pin. 
and and then learn more about each one of those spots. And about half of them, you know, are no good or are spots that we decide not to hunt, and about half of them are good. I mean, I'm just giving you arbitrary odds there. Sometimes right. it's 60-40, sometimes it's the opposite. But it's never the case where we pull into a public area and we're right like 10 out of 10 times <laughs> or anything like that. It's, it's never, ever the case. Yeah, now you're you're talking about those overlooked spots, and, and one of y'all's videos quickly came to mind, and I I think you were in Iowa, um, but but you and I can't remember if it was you who killed it or which one. I want to say it was you, but it, one of you guys killed a, a tremendous buck just right off of a, a gravel road. I mean, you could literally see the vehicles driving by in the background. You yeah, know? that was me and Ted. Okay, yeah. What mm-hmm. now? How was that? Was you able to locate that through cyber scouting, or was that more of just you know knowing already knowing the area and and knowing the deer movement in there? How how did you how were you able to pinpoint that spot? And because you know I I would look at that and think, well, I would probably just walk on right right by it and think, well, you know there'll be all kinds of people in here. So well, what, it was actually kind of a combination of both. Um, we had driven down that gravel road. There's a parking lot at the end of a dead end road. We'd driven down there and parked that parking lot and then hiked around back in there, went real deep and hunted up close to the parking lot and, and found a lot of deer sign, but also a lot of people sign. And on, I, I don't remember what exactly we were doing, but we were coming out one evening and a buck crossed the road in front of my truck after dark in that little pocket of timber right there. I kind of sat weird. So I went back to the house, got to look at photographs and topographic maps. And it was like, man, you know, if you take that road out of there, there's about six ridges that all dump right into this little bowl. And if you don't even think about the road there, that is a heck of a hub over bucks. I mean, what we call that in hillier country is a thermal hub, where most multiple ridges all dump down into the same bottom. Um, Bucks will oftentimes go down in that bottom and scrape and rub and whatnot and carry on because that's where all those trails meet that come off the ridges. You know, deer bedded up on these ridges around this. I mean, you look at it almost like a bicycle wheel. They're bedded on these ridges on the spokes of the bicycle wheel, and then they all sort of, there are trails that come off of those ridges that all sort of meet in the bottom right there at the hub. And that hub was almost darn near right on top of that gravel road. <laughs> and I, I got to thinking about where that buck crossed the road because he was crossing from private land to public land. And then we drove down that road one day in the middle of the day and just popped it out of the truck and see rubs right out of the right off the road ditch. I mean, and and that's something often. I mean, we do a lot of scouting from the road. When I was in Georgia the first night we were there on that WMA, I was scouting with binos off the road and I was looking for fresh rubs. And we found a pile of them just right off of the road. And that can kind of lead you back into some other things. But anyway, I'll try to stay on your, your question about the road, but we found those, that sign right next to it all in about 50 yards. I found our huge fresh scrape. And then it all started making sense. It's like, man, these deer, these bucks are cruising back and forth from these ridges and the parking lot's 300 yards away down there. And that's what everybody is driving down. It's a dead end road. That's what anybody driving down this road is going. They're going to that parking lot, and they're going deep in the public area. I mean, the guy that Greg and Dick put that one, he had been a mile and a half back there on a bicycle. And 
he was like, are you, what are you guys doing? Parks right here. And Greg's like, we're going to drag this buck out. <laughs> and the guy looked up and he's me and Ted pulling the buck out. And he's like, those guys killed that right there. And like, yeah, we parked up the road, off the side of the road and then, and walked down the road ditch for about 400 yards and then crossed into that timber, you know, and got far enough off the road where we were legal and then made a set up and, those bucks have, have done that same thing during the rut multiple years over and over and over again in that spot. Mm. So it's more just a, it's more a function of the topography and, and how bucks cruise those ridges looking for does in hill country than it is the road even being there. But roads, deer aren't, deer aren't scared of roads. I mean, pretty much anybody knows that. I mean, we've all been, had encounters with deer on the roads. Um, they're scared of people. So when a car stops on the road and somebody gets out of that car, that's going to have a negative impact on the deer. But if all they're seeing is cars driving by that road all the time, that's why a lot of times with turkeys or deer for that, if you got a blacktop highway, like an interstate or a heavily traveled blacktop highway where people never pull over, there's probably deer and turkeys living within two or 300 yards of that thing. If there's good habitat right off the side of the road. Because there's never any people right there. There's cars there all day long, but they get accustomed to that. And that was the same situation with that road buck that you're talking about. Yeah. It, it just makes me wonder how many times I've probably walked past a, a good place to hunt and dismissed it because, you know, the sign was there, but I just thought, well, this is, this is too close to a road or, or too easy access, you know. And, yeah, and but, sometimes those spots aren't any good. Sometimes all that sign is laid down in the middle of the night and you know, it just kind of depends on the proximity in which the deer are bedded. But in that, that situation, it it worked out. Yep. And and actually, my the buck I killed last year on opening day of the season, I was, where he was bedding was actually within sight of an access road. It wasn't, it wasn't a road you could drive on, um, but it was one, you know, that you could, uh, a, a foot traffic access. Oh, yeah. And, um, yep you know, not, not too far from the gate bedded within sight of that road. You know, no, no, many time, no telling how many times I'd walk past that, but found the bed, you know, went in a different way and access behind him and, and caught him coming out of that bed. And yeah, it, that's one thing I learned from Dan Infault several years ago. He's as, as you're probably aware, if you've watched our stuff, he's one of the, our mentors, if you will, about this bedding stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, we've learned a tremendous amount from him as a hunting beast over the years, but that was one thing that he talked about multiple times. And I've seen the same thing play out, uh, where mature bucks will bed close to an access like that human access. And they'll observe that thing or they'll, they'll bed, you know, close enough to it where they can get up after dark and they can go down there and they can smell and they can figure out who was there and who wasn't. I mean, it's almost just a function of survival, but when you, you know, like you said, in that spot, there probably wasn't nobody hunting that spot and that's why he's there. Right. Yeah. No, most people were, would walk right on past it because like I said, it was fairly close to the gate. What wasn't a spot. Yeah. No, really the only reason I, I would have went right past it, but I had, uh, there was a little terrain pinch point in there. It was thick bedding cover, little terrain pinch point, And I'd hung a trail camera on that, at that pinch point and was consistently getting pictures of that buck in there and then was able to locate yeah. the bed and went from there. But nice. Yeah. But Hey, you mentioned thermal hubs there. So, well, 
of course, first, first you mentioned the first thing you're looking for is, is to get away from the people. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but then you mentioned a the thermal hub there as well. What, what other kinds of things wh- when you're scouting, you know, on X, what, what else are you looking for uh, besides just getting away from the crowd and any certain habitat features or like said, any other um, terrain features that, that you're looking for before you ever step foot on the property? Well, it depends on what type of habitat you're in. It's very situational, but I would say if I was going to paint a broad brush stroke with it, I would, uh, I would say diversity in habitat is real important. So if you're, if you're looking at an aerial view and you found a spot on there that's hard to get to, it's going to be even sweeter if the colors on that map are all different. Um, or, you know, if the timber types are different, if there's a creek in there, if there's some open ag fields combined with some mature timber, maybe combined with a clear cut of some kind that's offering some sort of thick cover. You know, on Google Earth, when we were looking at the mountains of North Georgia, some of that monotonous terrain, that this is an immediate question people have. It's like, well, what do you do in areas where you don't have high habitat diversity? You just have big woods, monotonous timber. Well, it's, it looks monotonous. And it appears that way when you're walking through it, but the changes in the habitat are just way more subtle and they're harder to see, but they still exist there. So like North Georgia mountains, if you go to a winter view of an aerial photo, you can actually see that green mountain laurel growing up in some of those bottoms and whatnot in that big woods. So what we found in that that big woods terrain like that was there was some big mature timber up on the ridge tops with oak trees in it. Then you, when you drop down below on the benches and in the, in the ditches of those ridges, there was mountain laurel. And then there was a Creek that wound through that whole thing at a lower elevation, which had different tree types, different habitat growing within it. And that was just enough habitat diversity in that particular area to hold, you know, a bunch of deer and there was no people there. So I guess that's a long winded answer. Uh, to your question, but no. habitat diversity is incredibly important. And one thing that we always find mature black bedding next to, it sure seems like it's always anyway. Um, I mean, always is a word you should never use. <laughs> uh, but I would say more often than not, we find mature buck bedding near water, near some sort of permanent water source. That could be a pond, that could be a natural spring, could be a creek, river, lake, anything but they're usually better than a couple hundred yards of that water not every time but more often than not because deer have to water throughout the day even like a lot of times especially if it's hot um they're not gonna a lot of people think mature buck comes back to his bed at five in the morning and lays there till nine o'clock at night that's <laughs> right. the pace. they get up and they do stuff i mean they may not move very dang far but that's why you ain't seeing them during the day is because they have everything they need right there within 50 to a hundred yards of their bed. And they're standing up at one in the afternoon and browsing on stuff and walking down in the Creek to get a drink of water. And then they're going back up there and bedded back down again. So that's one thing we're always looking for is habitat diversity with water. That's a big one. Okay. Good to know. So how many spots will you typically have picked out, I guess, prior to ever getting to where you're going to hunt? Mm-hmm. That's, I don't know. That's, that's a tough call because it, 
kind of depends on the area, the size, how much time I got to hunt. But, uh, I mean, with that Georgia hunt from last year, we probably had 25, 30 spots on the map that I had PL pins dropped on. And the first half of those got wiped out in the first day that we were there. We <laughs> realized that they were a lot easier to get to than we anticipated. And then, uh, we just, we started working from, you know, off of the remaining pins that we had. And every time we're going to the woods, we're picking up a little bit more information each time where we can, you know, go back to the map. I mean, you, you almost never stop cyber scouting, if you will, on these hunts. At least I don't. Um, because you're, you're scouting, you're scouting on the map before you get there. Then you get there and then you see things that you didn't anticipate or that you're learning on the fly. And then you're trying to find where those patterns repeat themselves on that area. For example, when we got to Georgia and we started walking in the woods towards one of my first PL pins, possible location pins that I dropped, we fell off in this bottom and I noticed there was a bunch of deer sign underneath these red oaks. And I got to looking around along that elevation line where we were at on those benches. And I was like, man, there's a lot of red oaks growing on these benches right here for whatever the reason. And there's deer that are bedding and living right here, right now. So we took note of that and we started looking for that similar habitat in other situations on that area. And that led us to other good locations that were hot during that time. That's something I think people make a, a mistake of doing is they'll, they'll pick some spots on a map that they think ought to be good and they'll go in there and maybe they'll find some deer sign or whatever, and they'll just stick with them. Um, but the key, especially on a short trip is figuring out where the deer are at right now. Like, today i don't care where they were at a week and a half ago i mean i'm i do care I'm, I'm trying to retain that information for future use i should say but if i'm trying to kill a deer today i want to know where he's at right now it doesn't do me as much good to know where where he left a rub and a big scrape two weeks ago so that's when we found that fresh sign under the, i guess that's where i'm going with this is when we found that fresh sign over those red oaks on that bench we started looking for that pattern to repeat itself. And then as we started scouting other similar areas, we found that that was the case. Like these deer are targeting those last few available red oak acorns on these benches. And we're finding them in these spots consistently right now. It might not be the case in 10 days. It might not be the case in two weeks, but they're here right now. So this is where we got them. Okay. So when, when you arrive, when you first get to, you know, a, a new spot like that, a, a place you're going to hunt, do you dedicate a day or two to, to just strictly scouting or is it more, are, are you just scouting as you hunt? How, how does that work? Uh, yeah, I would, I think there's, there's probably a bunch of different ways to go about it, but from a general sense, I think you should prioritize your time in the woods or on the road scouting around that area. Um, as I should say, not just scouting, but scouting and hunting around that area. At any point, scouting could turn into hunting real quick if you see a big buck or you see something that tips you off or like some hot sign or whatever. But I would say once we get there, that's kind of our goal is to be in the field during every minute of legal shooting light. And what I mean by that is in the field could be in the truck, driving around a part of the public area which we haven't been before glassing from the truck could mean hiking back in somewhere and hunt and still hunting our way to a bedding area 
It could mean hunting in the morning, driving around during the middle of the day, looking at new spots, looking at access routes to the new spots, and then hunting again in the evening. The main takeaway, I guess, that I'm getting at is being the being in the field, occupying your mind with deer on that area all day. If you can, and doesn't matter what time of year it is, because a lot of a, a lot of these trips you're on are short. You know, you've got five, seven days, like I mentioned earlier, and you've got to make it happen quick. So you need to be retaining as much information as you can at the time, putting yourself in a position to, to shoot something. Um, so I guess to answer your question, we're, we're always scouting. I mean, that never, that never ends. But when we get to an area and we're unfamiliar with it, that's one thing. We're immediately driving the roads. And we're checking those access points on those possible location pins that we dropped. And we're, we're trying to see if our guesses were correct. Is this place uh, void of people? Like, is this particular pin that we dropped, does it have humans in there? And if it does, that's something that we're going to go and check out midday. So that's something that we do immediately as soon as we get there. But I mean, I, I try to balance that with the amount of time that we have. So we might only spend half of a day or an evening driving around to a few of those spots. And once we found a few of them that look like they need our attention, then we'll dive straight in there. You could go overboard. I mean, if you end up with, with 25 different spots, you're never going to be able to hunt all those in a given week. Right. So, you know, you could definitely go overboard scouting as far as that's concerned, but. Okay. Yeah, that's how we that's how we usually start those trips off. Yeah, lots of trucks windshield time. <laughs> so so once okay once you've once you've narrowed that down and and maybe found some spots that that seem to be overlooked or, or not getting as much pressure. What you know you talked about finding the fresh sign. You know where those deer are now. What exactly are you looking for? What does that look like? I mean, are you looking for tracks, droppings? But what what are you really focused on? when you're out there all on the, the above <laughs> everything um we're not only looking for deer sign we're looking for human sign um you know and fresh boot tracks in the mud is there fresh droppings on the ground and when and when you press on those droppings with your boot can you see that you know it's not solid it's really really fresh is there pee in the scrape from the night before the day before you know is that there still got moisture in it Ears hoof dug into it and exposed some of that, you know, that wet or dirt underneath of the the top layer of soil, because that's showing you that that thing was there, you know, at least in the last couple of days. Like if I come up on a big scrape, this is, but it's got a bunch of leaves in the middle of the scrape, then a deer might not have worked it recently. But if I look up at that licking branch and I see that the branch is snapped off and it's a green twig, you know, and then I find a little bit of pee in that scrape. I can still tell that the deer are using it. Um, it just might not have been worked on the ground. So fresh sign could mean any, any number of things. I mean, when you come across a, a rub that's just been recently worked, it's almost like the thing is sweating because you can see the moisture in the bark. If, uh, if you're in, if obviously we're hunting in the fall for deer, but if a bunch of leaves just blew down in a windstorm two or three days before you get to the field and you go out and you find a rub and there's bark sitting on top of the leaves, then you know that that thing was left just recently. Um, and then when it comes to tracks, 
I'm always trying to find you know, some sort of moisture in the soil where I can get a really good print. And if that track is real sharp, it, it doesn't have any weathering on it at all, then that's telling you that it's pretty dang fresh. You know, in some of those low-lying areas where there's more moisture in the soil, that, that stuff's going to hold sign longer, and it's gonna, the sign is going to look fresher than it is, I should say. But you can tell a lot by the tracks. I mean, if you, you could find a big track in the dirt, but if the sides of it are kind of rounded off, you know, and the track looks fairly weathered, there's some leaves sitting on top of it or whatever, um, that thing might have been left a month ago, you know. Right. So it, it's not giving you as much data. But in, in we're not necessarily looking for piles of fresh sign. We're just looking for, you know, a little bit of fresh sign. Obviously, piles of fresh sign is great, but you're not always going to find that. I mean, it's in an area, if you're hunting low buck density or low deer density, you might have one mature buck in there that you're targeting. And if that thing is bedded in a solitary location, kind of away from the rest of the deer, you ain't going to find a lot of sign in a lot of those situations. You might find one set of fresh tracks and a fresh buck turd on the ground, and that might be it. But that's telling you that he was there really recently now are you i don't want to put this are, are you considering when you find that sign are you considering i guess the that in relation to you know the habitat and the terrain around you i mean uh, is all fresh sign equal or are you mainly you know looking for fresh sign near bedding cover or no and that's a good question all fresh sign is not created equal we're looking for sign close to bedding cover or where we where we expect a buck to be bedding. If I find fresh sign out on the edge of a bean field that's 350 yards from the nearest real good bedding cover, I'm probably going to keep, I'm probably going to take note of that, but majority of that sign is left by young bucks and does that are out there in the evening and then mature bucks that are out there at night, which I can't hunt them at night, so I'm not, I'm not real worried about that, but that might be an area where I would run a trail camera or something um, to monitor what type of deer is in the area, but I wouldn't hunt that spot because it's too far away from the security cover that they like to move in during the daylight. So yeah, to your point, if we get back in, I would trade a pile of fresh sign on the edge of that bean field for one fresh track and a fresh rub or something like that back in a bedding area any day, because that's the buck that I can possibly kill during the day. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. And so so you're you know, you're you're you found these different spots through through your cyber scouting and now you're out there, you know, narrowing them down based on access and, and you're putting boots on the ground looking for the sign. When do you I, I guess at what point do you stop and say, Okay, this, this is where I need to hang a hang a stand and, and hunt? Or or are you mm-hmm. looking are you looking for multiple, I guess, locations? good good hunting locations before you ever hang that first stand and and hunt or you know is there a is there an amount of sign where you you would find it and say okay i need to get in the tree now if i think if there's real good bedding cover close by and i cut a big track or you know find a fresh scrape right on that transition from thick to open and i think it's possible that that thing's better in there then i don't want to go no further than that um, you know, at least in my experience, 
when I've blown by that sign, it's come back to bite me occasionally <laughs> because I've made it another 15 yards and I've blown them out of there. Another mistake that you can make is you can find that sign and you'll be like, well, I think I'll go a little bit further and see if I can find some more. Then you go another 10 yards and you find more. Then you go another 10 yards and you find more. And then you decide to go back and set up on the first sign that you found in that sequence. Well, what you just did there is you left your ground scent all the way down that edge. So a lot of times if I find that fresh sign in that spot where, I mean, I a good example I, I always think about is a bird dog, watching a bird dog work and seeing when they get birdie. Like when you've got your pointer out there or whatever, and he's looking for quail in the, the grass. When he starts to get a whiff of that covey, he changes his demeanor. You know, he start he starts making smaller circles. He starts paying attention. He might point. And because he's, he's super focused in that moment because he smells that they're close by. It's almost like that. When you find that fresh sign right next to a bedding area like that, that's kind of the feeling that, that I get. It's like, okay, I need to be on high alert. I need to start looking for places to set up. I need to start considering, you know, what the wind is going to do in this spot. If the deer is going to come by this sign, which direction is he going to come by that bedding area? Where could he be bedding right now? And, you know, all of those little things. So my mind's running a million miles an hour whenever I find that stuff because I'm trying to cross off all those little details. And yes, I'm looking for trees to climb up in. I'm looking for a ground setup to get in where I can shoot that spot. Uh, a number of things. But, you know, if you're trying to be super aggressive, there's also, it, this is an incredibly situational question because there's more than one way to skin that cat. If you're in there and it's a super windy day and you're just starting to find sign along the edge of a thicket like that and you got the wind in your favor, heck, I mean, you might be able to just slide in there. If it's windy and wet, you might be able to just sneak in there on high alert with an arrow knock to kill that thing um, without doing anything else other than just still hunting through that bedding area. Because when when you get in that proximity of where they live, like I mentioned that example a while ago, a buck will get up at one in the afternoon to go and get a drink of water. We see this all the time. We, we see mature bucks up moving inside of these bedding areas at all times of the year at weird times during the day. Um, you know, the first light and last light, obviously, but we'll kill them sometimes at nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, early in the season or in the middle of the afternoon, you know, especially if it's windy and there's a front coming through or something, they just are fidgety. They're not comfortable laying down all day. So they're, they're constantly standing up and moving in inside of that bubble, but you got to be within that bubble. You got to be inside that little hundred yard circle, if you will. And it's not necessarily a circle; it all depends. But you got to be within that zone where they feel comfortable moving during the day. So, when you find fresh sign along the edge of it, really stop and slow down and start thinking about things. Because I've made that mistake way too many times where I've gone right by and I've blown the buck out of there. <laughs> now. Now, yeah, you mentioned bumping a buck like that. And, and I got to say, you know, in my 30 years prior to, to ever finding you guys, if I would have bumped a buck, I'd have thought, well, I might as well leave here and, you know, call it a day for this spot. But, but you guys have actually had some success bumping a deer like that, setting up and then, and then killing it. Haven't you? Uh, yeah, we have most of the time. 
um, when we bump them and we kill them, we're bumping them out of a spot and then we're either killing them at that spot a day or two later, or we're killing them in a nearby spot a day or two later. Okay. So, you know, maybe there's five quality bedding areas on this piece that we're aware of and we bump that deer out of one of them. And, uh, it, it, and also depends on the nature in which you bump the deer. If you're walking in there pretty loud, he sees you and smells the crap out of you and he takes <laughs> off running. Um, there's a chance he'd be back, but there's also a real good chance that he's gone. Like he is, he's bailed on that area and you might not see him back in there for a couple weeks, you know, but if you bump them out of there and you just startle them, like they either just saw you and saw something that was, that looked funky and made them uncomfortable. So they're going to leave there, leave that spot for now. Um, and, and you can, if you're able to see the deer and how they behave when you bump them, it really helps. Cause if you blow a buck out of a bedding area, he takes off like a bat out of hell through there and he stops 40 yards away and then turns around and starts looking around. That's telling you right there, you just startled him. He doesn't know what you are. And that's why he stopped. He's trying to get a whiff of you or, or see you or something. And um, most of the more times than not, they turn around and then they just ease out of there. But when we bump them like that, it's game on. It's like, okay, that thing is going to ease out of this bedding area. He's going to go to the next available cover and he's going to bed back down again, usually within two or 300 yards of that spot. And that's when. That's when we go in and kill them in those other um, spots nearby, those other bedding areas. Okay. That's when we've had success doing doing that. And occasionally we've had success bumping them and then killing them at the same exact spot that day. But that more that happens more often in the rut. If you bump into a buck and a doe and you split them up, uh, that buck will come. <laughs> sometimes he will come right back to that spot looking for that doe just because they're rutted up and he's worried about her. He ain't worried about you. Right. So. All right. Here, here's something that I, I struggle with. It, okay. You, you found a, you found a spot that looks great, has the fresh sign. You hang a stand and hunt there. At what point do you pull the plug on that spot? How many, how many sits are you going to give that? And I know that's going to vary it, it, depending on the situation, but in, in general, I mean, we, do you just typically hunt a spot one time and, and, go to the next spot or will you hunt it multiple times uh, in a row? Most of the time, most of the time we just hunt it once and then we'll move. Now the move might only be 50 yards or a hundred yards. Um, or it could be, you know, 300 yards to a totally different bedding area. Uh, but most of the time we're moving the few times when we, when we consistently hunt a spot like, like that over and over and over again is if the access is, perfect like if you can if you got a creek or something that you can take in where you're walking your water all the way pretty much to the base of the tree and you're not alarming anything getting in and out of there then yeah we'll hunt that spot numerous times heck if you as long as you're getting in and out of there clean and you're seeing bucks we're gonna keep hunting the spot i mean but what we found more often than not when you're hunting them in these bedding areas these are sensitive locations so when you get in there, you've got to wait for the right conditions to slide in there um, to get set up without alerting the deer. And then you have, that's your best chance at killing him that, that first time. So we really put all our eggs in that basket when we go into uh, 
to hunt a bedding area. We try to be super aggressive on the first sit because that's the that's your best chance at catching him off guard in there. Once you leave your scent in that spot, you might not spook him, but there's a good chance he's going to figure out what was going on and he may adjust his movements a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's some research out there that, that shows exactly that, you know, how I think Auburn maybe done some research on how quickly those deer respond to hunting pressure. And it is, it is very quick. Yep. And like I said, the few spots that we hunt over and over again, those are anomalies. They don't, there's not very many of them like that where we can get in and out without spooking them. That roadbuck spot that we were talking about earlier is one of the few. Just because you're walking down a gravel road and then you're jetting into the woods 100 yards in and you're popping up. You're still leaving scent there and, you know, a couple of sits in there during the rut and that's about all it can handle. Um, but it is a spot where we've set, you know, a second and third time and had good luck in there. Yeah. Now your, your tactics and, and does this process change as the season progresses? Like, you know, during, during the rut versus early season yeah. versus late season. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it definitely does. Um, but it kind of, I know I've said already a bunch of times, but it all depends on the, the situation that you're in, the habitat situation, the hunting pressure situation. The weather on that given day is going to determine what tack that you use because one day may be hot and dry with no wind and you wouldn't think deer movement would be good at all. Well, if you only have a few days to hunt, you're going to be sitting on water in the middle of a bedding area that you can hopefully access, you know, without spooking deer. But then the next day, a cold front pushes through or something and it's 20 miles an hour and it's wet the leaves are wet and you can move around the woods without alerting much. Those are the days when we're super aggressive. Um, and we try to get as tight to those bears as possible. So it kind of, kind of just all depends. I mean, it, to answer your question, it definitely changed from early season to the rut to late season, but I would say it changes day to day for us throughout the fall on how we approach something. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, I'm curious now having hunted, you know, so many different states and all different regions of the country, have have you noticed some I guess some differences or or maybe consistencies uh across, you know, deer behavior or or, or the actual hunting process? I mean, it is is one area harder to hunt than the other or, or are they just different? Because, you know, you hear a lot of opinions on this you know of course people in the south where i'm at think it's toughest down here because of all the cover um you know you hear hear people up north in states like michigan and pennsylvania that have the extreme hunter density and and you know they think it's toughest up there what what are your thoughts having hunted so many different areas um is, is one tougher than the other uh yeah i would say so um but they're tougher for different for different reasons, and you kind of already hit on a few of them right there. It and it it kind of all depends on what your goals are. Um, if you're trying to shoot like a five year old buck on public land in Iowa, it's not easy to do. It's really really difficult. Like those deer behave just like a mature buck would in Georgia on public land with all that thick cover. They act the same. Um, mature buck. It's going to live in an area where there is no, where there is no or very, very little 
human sin. And they're going to, they're going to be the majority of them are mostly nocturnal and they're moving outside of their bedding zones, you know, after dark. I don't really even like using that word though, because I don't believe mature. I don't believe any deer is purely nocturnal. Right. Um, but yeah, mature bucks fed in very secure locations and live in very secure locations. They do not move very far during the day, but and hunting pressure definitely impacts that. If you're hunting on an area that gets virtually no hunting pressure, mature bucks will move further during the day. And I think that's why a lot of people say, well, you know, our bucks that are down here, for example, um, down south, what you're saying, they'd be like, well, our bucks are all nocturnal. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, I hate to say it, but that just ain't true. If you, I mean, even if you look at the scientific data, it's not true right. they're they're moving during the day yep. they're just not moving in the area where you're hunting during the day or and they don't move very dang far during the day but we see that across the board no matter if you're in michigan or iowa or down south if you have an area that's getting hunted which most areas are in some capacity then mature bucks are going to live in that small secure location and they're in the, and sometimes they live in just a few of those spots Sometimes they'll live in a pile of different ones, but every one of them's got a different personality, you know, uh, across the landscape. But, um, man, to, to, to talk about which area is the toughest to hunt, we get that question so <laughs> much and it is, it's hard for, for me to put my finger on it. I would, I would say we've had the toughest time in the South. Um, I think because we don't get to spend as much time down there as we, as we have in the other areas. And I mean, to your point on what people say, it's thick, like it's hard to narrow down a specific bedding area down there because the deer are small, they're flighty and they can seemingly bed just about anywhere. in a lot of that habitat because it is so thick. But I think the misconception people have is that there's not any big, bucks mature bucks running around. and i didn't i mean we have not found that to be the case in the south when we've hunted public land we've hunted public land in georgia alabama and mississippi now and on every spot there's bucks and there's mature bucks i and i think a big reason why is because of that thick cover yeah they they can withstand a fair amount of hunting pressure down there because they have so much escape cover and it makes them more difficult and more frustrating to hunt because they're not as visible because of that thick cover. But um, at the same time, if you can go about it and uh, in the right way, as in bouncing through those bedding areas throughout a, a given year and maintaining that aggressive approach, you're going to see them eventually. That's one thing I don't, down south, I think it's real important to be aggressive, almost more than in other places. Because, you know, unless you have a real small area, but if you're looking at a public area that's, you know, thousands and thousands of acres in size down south and it's real thick, well, you you could have three times the bedding locations in that area as we would up north. Yeah. And if you bump a deer out of one of them, he's not going to go very far. He's just going to, he's just going to move deeper into that security somewhere. So, I mean, you almost have, you almost have more hunting options. At least that's what we found. When we hunted in, and we haven't seen the hunting pressure to be uh, ridiculously high down south. Um, 
we've actually we actually see more archery hunting pressure the first week in November in Iowa public land than we do in our trips down south on hunting public land. Now, I mean, we have limited experience down there, obviously. So, in, in like I've mentioned throughout this podcast, it's very, very situational, depending on the area that you're hunting and the proximity to, you know, high population centers and that sort of thing. Like, if you go and you plop down on some public ground right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> you're probably going to run into a lot of hunters um, just because you're, you know, within a high population center. Right. But we um, that other example you threw out was from Michigan crowd. Uh, and to be honest, man, that stuff up there was really a lot better than I thought it was going to be in Michigan and in Pennsylvania. And we get lots of mail from those places or messages, you know, saying this is some of the toughest deer hunting in the country. And it is tough because there's a lot of people. There's a, a very rich hunting tradition in those states. But I would almost rather have an area where I have a high um, amount of hunting pressure. So long as the area is big enough to withstand it and the deer herd is, you know, able to withstand it to a degree. Yeah. Because that helps me figure it out a lot faster. I can, I can look at where all those hunters are at because it's way easier for me to scout hunters than it is for me to scout deer. And if I'm scouting hunters and they're only leaving me with two or three options on a public area where they're not going, that's going to make finding those deer way quicker. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we found to be the case, you know, up in Michigan and Pennsylvania anyway. Like, like there's a lot of hunters, but there's also a ton of public land. Um, so we almost had unlimited options at our fingertips. When we went through there, we were just speed scouting like crazy, uh, bouncing from one area to the next to the next. And we were able to find those little holes where there weren't people going and we were able to find them relatively quickly. So, uh, and it was like, I'm not, I'm not trying to sugarcoat it, say it, you know, like hard. It's really, really hard, but anytime you're hunting a mature buck on public land, it's going to be difficult. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, <laughs> it's not easy to kill a mature buck anywhere. I'm certain of that. Well, one, one more kind of, question before we kind of start to wrap this up and it i guess it's i don't think it's off the wall i mean we've talked a little bit about uh you of pressure and and leaving your scent and that kind of thing but one thing that that's jumped out at me with you guys is i've never seen you really using or promoting any kind of you know scent eliminating clothing or scent killer sprays or or cover scents or anything of that nature um do you guys not use those or i'm a cur- i'm curious what your thoughts are on that type of stuff um i used to use them all the time when i was younger uh well in fact growing up i i would go through gallons of that similar <laughs> spray every fall yeah um i used to use that i used to use carbon clothing i used to use you know the scent lock stuff uh i've used ozone a good bit and in the last i would say six years five six years I've kind of tapered with that off to the point where I don't use really anything now. I mean, I don't even worry about washing my clothes until they just get like, you know, stinky. <laughs> so <laughs> just at that point, I'll wash them. But, um, yeah, I don't, we don't use it. We don't use all. Yeah. And well, I, I assume you just m- meticulously watch the wind. I mean, is that, that pretty much your, 
your scent control method? Yeah. Yeah. And ground scent. Um, but to be honest, uh, ground scent is always something we paid attention to, even when we were, even when we were controlling our scent. And I can't really speak to whether or not I believe this stuff works or not. I mean, I guess I could. I mean, I'm fine with sharing my opinion with folks, but I'm, I won't ever rule out that some kind of scent control process can work to either eliminate or reduce your ground scent or, you know, possibly reduce the amount of human scent that you put into the air. It's just, I've seen that, that what the links people have to go to in order to make that stuff, you know, work in their minds. And I used to go do that all the time. Like, I mean, I had, boxes and totes filled with all kinds of products and things. And I would, I would try to go down the list and do all of, you know, check all the boxes and make sure my boots never, you know, touched any sort of foreign surface other than the woods. Um, and at the end of the day, I was spending so much time focused on that, that it was taken away from my time thinking about deer and woodsmanship and the, those things in the woods. So when I got rid of um, it really helped, but not because I, not because I didn't think that any of it worked necessarily. It just helped because my time was reprioritized to thinking about, you know, where these deer are living and how they behave. Now I just worry about the wind and where my ground scent is at, but the wind is an entire topic in itself. Oh yeah. yeah. Because it, it is so interesting to watch how it works in different environments even in during different times of the day and how deer will use it to their advantage. Um, that's, that's what's been really fascinating for me, you know, especially once we dove into the whole bedding stuff, after Dan got us, you know, hooked on that years ago. Um, just, just paying attention to the wind and not only from a hunting perspective, but from the deer's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. We won't, we won't dive into that rabbit hole today, but, uh, but yeah, definitely. I, I'm all for, uh, I, I love that, that you guys, you know, don't, well, I think that's one of the reasons that, that so many folks are, are attracted to, you know, your all's content is because you're not product pushers, um, especially when it comes to any kind of, you know, gimmicky type stuff. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for things that, that lower the, I guess the entry, um, hurdles for, for new hunters and that, you know, so they're not watching you guys and thinking they need all this stuff to get out there and, and go hunting and be successful. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you talk about that, that, you know, you guys are obviously very successful and you're not, you know, spending a bunch of money on all this sin elimination and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> so let's let, just kind of wrap it up, I guess, with uh, what, what's, uh, what do you guys have planned for, for the fall here? Any, any, new states or special trips you have lined up for yourself? Oh, um, I think we're, we're trying to go out West to hunt whitetail somewhere in early September, but where yet? Uh, and I were about Arkansas and Texas the other day. And, uh, those are two places we may try to get to this year. And then we're going to do the public land challenge as we've done in years past, but we've not settled on a state yet. I think we'd be, We'd be looking at Kentucky or Indiana or Illinois for that this year, but I'm not sure which one. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's always a fun one to watch. I, I enjoy that seeing, seeing all, all the different guys and, you know, different, different techniques and, 
that, that's that's a pretty cool thing y'all are doing. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot of fun with that. And uh, this is on a different note, but to your comment about you know the success that we've had in the woods on deer, I just want to preface by saying this or, or or tell people that the ma- major reason for that is the amount of time that we get to spend in the woods. Um, you know, you you couldn't believe the amount that you can learn about deer in a given season. If you're spending 50 to a hundred days a year in the woods, like you're the amount of data and information that you get in that period of time is something that, you know, in one year that hunter may take eight to 10 years to learn, um, just, just from time in the woods. And that's, that's been the number one factor that I've always I've always looked at when it comes to hunter success. And I mean, that's, that's what even a lot of states base success on is the amount of, you know, man days or, or hunter days spent in the field. Right. So that's it. That is a, a big part of it. And that's why that ties in into what we were talking about efficiency so much earlier. Like that's what I'm, that's what I'm always trying to get better at is, how do you become more efficient with the time that you have in the woods? Like how do you maximize the amount that you can learn each time that you go to the woods so that you can be more successful on limited time? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road. You know, a lot of people, a TV hunter or whatever that kills big bucks every year, they can go out there and they can, they have time like we do to devote to hunting a specific deer. I mean, they might be able to throw 40 or 50 sits at the thing, but that doesn't help somebody you know like my uncle that's working five days a week that's got five days of vacation every fall you know he's trying to go out and kill a buck with his bow on eight or nine days of hunting in an archery season so that's what i'm always trying to get better at doing is figuring out how the heck to figure the deer out faster yeah well and and that's the great thing about you know, all the content that's available out there now, you know, what you guys are putting out is, is you can help through being able to, through spending all the time that, that you're spending out there and, and learning what you're learning, you're able to share that and, and kind of reduce the learning curve for the rest of us, you know, who, who may not, you know, get to spend as much time out there, but, you know, we're, we are able to kind of learn from, from what you're learning. And, and so that's what, that's what makes it so great now. Uh, in, in today's time, being somebody that, that hunted, uh, start hunting way before YouTube and and Facebook and all the other you know the the internet in general. Um, there's just so yeah. much so much information out there now. Um, not all of it good, but there's a lot of great information out there now to to help shorten that learning curve for people. But oh, absolutely, and we're we we use that to our advantage as, as well. Years ago, like I said, I've mentioned Dan several times in this podcast. Um, but yeah, I mean it was. It was back in 2014, 2015, when we started looking into the betting stuff. And I remember having, you know, the first podcast, first first phone conversation I'd ever had with Dan Intall. And I, at the time, I was sitting in mid Whitetail, and I had all of this footage and all my fingertips every day at that job of mature bucks. Um, because we had a huge pro staff and we got guys that, you know, they're killing mature bucks and they're hunting mature bucks all the time. So we have all of this footage from all these different states, basically with, of mature buck behaviors, you know, 
And as I was talking to Dan for that first time, and he was talking about how they bed and how they use the wind to their advantage and how they avoid people and all these things, um, all these light bulbs just started going off, man. It was like, holy cow. You can look back at all this, all of this footage, and you can see where he's right about 90% of this stuff. So, yeah, that to your point, the amount of information that's available now to folks is, is insane, but it's a it's a great tool to use to make you more efficient. Yep, absolutely. Well, Aaron, man, I can't thank you enough for, for your time with us today. Um, where, where can the folks keep up with uh, the hunting public and what you guys are doing this fall? Um, you can find us on YouTube at the hunting public. That's where most of the content will be. Uh, that's where we post all our videos and stuff. And then we also have an Instagram page, Facebook, uh, even a uh, TikTok is what Ted <laughs> is in mess with here lately. <laughs> nice. So yeah. And then our website, the huntingpublic.com. Well, good deal, man. I, I wish you guys luck on the, uh, the deer tour this year and I'll be uh, definitely looking forward to, to keeping up with you and, and seeing what you guys do. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. No problem. All right, guys, that concludes our interview with Aaron Warbritton. Uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the deer season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple podcast, Google podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and, and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to, uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to deerassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the, the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website, again, at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Hey, you can become a member. And don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.